I should announce it. Shall I? Memory of a free festival. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Keir Milburn, and I'm joined by my very dear friends, Nadia Idle. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And this episode, this trip, we're discussing the seasonal topic of festivals. The children of the summer's end Gathered in the dampened grass we played our songs and felt the London sky Resting on our hands, it was Godland It was rugged and naive, it was heaven So, why are we talking about festivals? More than just because it's the summer? Well, I think it partly because it's the summer. I mean, we're partly talking about festivals because it's the summer, but also because this is one of the first summers. I mean, maybe, you know, 2022, a little bit, but there's the return of the festivals um, in terms of people being able to go to them after the pandemic, um, etc. But also there's all these really interesting things about UK festivals, like where they sit in the imaginary and how they function and also the kind of people that they make us. So those are some of the very sort of little reasons why I'm interested in festivals. We'll get into some of the big questions later. Notorious festival hater Jeremy Gilbert, what have you got to say for yourself? <laughs> well, it's always a fascinating topic because clearly, like on paper, the festival, the music festival, ought to be the cultural form which like expresses the ACFM aesthetic and even its social politics the most perfectly. But as I have commented on the show before, I, I have severe doubts about the whole sort of format of the modern music festival as to whether it really can deliver what it purports to. And that at least is an interesting topic to explore. And also there is something unique about the status of music festivals, really just because of the, the, the unique status of Glastonbury in the British cultural imaginary, I think, which is interesting to think about. I mean, other countries have festivals and other countries have all kinds of festivals and there are festivals that are not music festivals, but nowhere else has something quite like Glastonbury like that plays the role that it does in our national imaginary, uh, for better or worse. Uh, so that is an interesting topic in itself to explore, I think, when we get around to it. I mean, also, we, we did, a couple of months ago, recorded an episode of, about the great outdoors. Very good episode it was too. But then we started talking about festivals and it just sort of reminded me anyway of that. There's a really interesting history about festivals and free festivals that runs from like the 50s up to, honestly, to be honest, I'd say like the mid 90s or something. Uh, but it's a very interesting history that's that's not known about. And it reminded me how um, formative trips to free festivals, well, and to Glastonbury, places like that, were when I was uh, a young whippersnapper. So in some ways, it's a little bit of um, nostalgia for um, the, the middle-aged, which is basically what Glastonbury is now, isn't it? Kaboom. Um, <laughs> but before we get to any of this, we should mention some other bits and pieces around the ACFM Extended Universe 
for instance, our newsletter. So we do a newsletter of every episode in which we send out you know, little bits and pieces, little bits of extra uh, um, info, links and writings, that sort of thing. So if you want a bit more bonus content on the uh, weirder uh, side of the left, you can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you just go to Novara Media slash ACFM newsletter, sign up there. Don't forget, every episode we add the music that we've played to a huge playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM on Spotify for that. And we should also give a little shout out to our our host body, uh, Novara Media. Uh, if you want to support ACFM and the, and the wider work that Novara do, please, please, please go to Novara Media slash support and donate. I think they always say uh, uh, an hour's wage it's too hard to work out you can pay what you like okay announcements over parish notice is done let's get back to the topic touch we touch the very soul of holding each and every life we claim the very source of joy ran through it didn't but it seemed that way I kissed a lot of people that day well, first, I suppose we have to define what is a festival, because obviously, when we started thinking about this, and when people first hear the phrase, what these days, what they think you mean is indeed a music, a particular type of music festival that really derives from the rock, rock music festivals of the 70s. Whereas, of course, you know, the term festival can have a much wider meaning. I mean, to some extent, etymologically, it's it's generally inseparable from just a wider notion of celebration of a collective celebration of some kind that's that's what it means you know historically as we i guess as we all know even most archaeologists and paleoanthropologists presume even prehistorically the humans have organized the time and their their experience of the year and the calendar and the life cycle around these particular events particular moments so when ordinary working activity is suspended in favour of various kinds of celebratory activity and festival can just be it can just be a term for those like religious festivals one's a lot more conscious of this i think if you're in like a catholic country in europe for example than if than if you're in a protestant country because you still have all these saint days and the feast of the assumption and we'll be in a couple of weeks in mid-august and all this sort of thing whereas here in Britain, you know, the, the residual equivalent of the old festivals calendar is now the calendar of public holidays, which in Britain are referred to as bank holidays, because what matters in Britain is whether the banks are closed or not. The thing that distinguishes, I think, is that the difference between those kind of religious festivities or those kind of festivals and the modern phenomenon of the music festival in Britain is that with a music festival, you go away to it. It's not yeah. something that happens in your town. And I think yeah. that's significant. Yeah, it is. That'll probably be one of the re one of the things I think is wrong with it. I can, I can assure you now that will be one of the things I think is wrong with it. <laughs> I think it is useful to situate music festivals amongst what we what is a longer tradition, uh, and it's hard to it's hard to untangle that tradition of festivals and fe uh, festivities because they were sort of overlaid by Christian holidays and Christian festivals, weren't they? Which then get overlaid by like bank holidays and these sorts of official days off. Uh, but like, yeah, festivals 
there's something around them about them being at the time where there's an excess of food, basically. You know, so it's like a suspension of the normal, the of normal time in which you uh, indulge in. Well, not always an excessive behaviour, but even something like harvest festivals, which are celebrated in C of E, I think, is it? I don't know. I'm not really a churchy man. <laughs> but not, you hardly think, ever go. Now, I hardly ever go anymore. Song, do you? <laughs> yeah, I've skipped even song a couple of times. Yeah, just <laughs> just a special occasions, just special. When you say C of E, just for like the non brought up as a Christian person here and any listeners, is this is this is Church of England, right? It is Church yeah, of England. Yeah. Which, it, it does have. I do have to stop and think when people say that. No, well, you're right. Which for American uh, or, or Canadian listeners would mean Episcopalian, but that being the established church of this country, still technically. Yeah. But with a sort of with with a with the idea that you know of all religions, it's probably the least religious one. Uh, they don't like to mention things like uh, you know belief and so forth. <laughs> we should do a whole episode about Anglicanism <laughs> one day. It's, it's such a weird phenomenon. No, so what are the like the, the the Stonehenge? So this big megalith stone circle uh, in Wiltshire. Is it in Wiltshire? Yeah, it yeah, is, it? it is. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, but as far as we, as far as archaeologists it can work out, Stonehenge was some sort of festival, probably religious festival. You know, it definitely is linked to the summer sol- solstice because the the signs, the stones line up. There's alignment. You mean with... it was the site of a festival? It was the site of festivities. Yeah, sites sites of festivities. They think because of all of the like the animal bones that are, are discovered there and so forth. And it, yeah, it seemed to be of a size in which it would play a, it would seem to play a particularly big role in like holding together a particular social structure. The symbolic structure of all of that is sort of um, is gone; it's rotted away. But um, that's what we can make out from the mineral remains. Yeah, so but there there is a long history of of, of festivals of that sort. But there are also like there are also other sorts of festivals, such as like arts festivals, like the Ed- Edinburgh Festival, and particularly the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I think technically one refers to it as the Festival Fringe. Yes, I can Rather than the Fringe fr- Festival. Oh, I see. Sorry. It is the fringe of the official <laughs> festival, which one that, goes to attend. That mention of Anglicism is uh, it's made me a bit loose <laughs> in my addiction. <laughs> like the conference fringe, there's two things that have a fringe, and that is the Edinburgh <laughs> Festival and Labour Party Conference. Right. Okay. So, but but what brings what what all of these have in common? so far is what we're talking we're mostly talking about the summer and this point really interests me because of this idea that it's very much linked to the climate the kind of temperate it's wet and unpredictable but more or less a temperate climate that we live in with four seasons right and then the yeah, summer true. is when you get the is when you get the festivals obviously in other places in the world this is not necessarily the case because people relate to the summer and the climate differently obviously in very hot countries the summer is when you go indoors and you don't celebrate things like that. But it seems to be that in Britain, even the, you know, whether it's Edinburgh or whether it's, you know, Hay on Wye or, or, you know, go, going back all the way to Stonehenge, et cetera, it's, this is stuff that happens in the summer. Of course, there are winter festivities, but they're not thought of, I think, in the modern imaginary, at the same way as a festival. And therefore, in the lineage that brings us all the way up to Glastonbury and the uh, in the modern music festivals, and I find that really interesting because it's very much linked to place. Well, that's true, and, and the place where I always think of as having even much more of that kind of festival is France. I was saying this when we were preparing notes for this show. Like in in France, over the whole summer, really, the whole of July and August, 
like all over the country, every every place or every ever whatever size will be having things they call festivals happening nearly every weekend. And it can mean anything from like basically a poetry reading to a massive rock festival to to a to a sort of walking tour to an art exhibition to to a sonnet lumiere like a light show with music to a firework display it can sort of mean anything and it does it does just sort of mean a sort of a sort of collective thing that you do outdoors that's all it sort of means so, but that is also it's a good point about climate actually because it's sort of probably it's like too hot by the time you get down to southern spain to do a lot of that sort of thing in the mid-afternoon but france is probably the country as a country where you can pretty much rely on the fact that it's probably going to be dry and warm like for most for nearly all of july and august so that's what it ends up meaning in that context and i i, I sort of feel like britain has been going in that direction a little bit i feel like the there has definitely has been an expanded concept of the, the festival and a dissemination of the idea of the festival so you've got those things like when the light gets in that supposedly a sort of philosophy festival yeah and hey on why yeah hey on which is hey on why the literary festival is a lot older but even the world transformed calling itself a festival i mean that's an interesting thing for us to think about like what mm. does it mean that the world transformed with which we've been associated since its inception to some extent because i i always sort of i always sort of laugh at it calling itself a festival whenever i have to explain to anyone who is who doesn't go to the world transform what it is i say it's basically it's a conference with with a lot of parties what it is if a walking tour in the summer in a village in france is a festival then surely the world transformed or plan c's political festivals can be festivals except i guess when we were doing plan c's festivals they were out in the countryside so that's the excuse there i mean it's kind of one of those things it's like where do you draw the line i guess it's about whether it feels like a festival like if the world transformed feels a bit more like glastonbury than it does in the inside of the labor party conference i think that's what they're going for it's about it's a, it's about what you're what you're giving off what the what the signals you're giving off of what you're associating yourself with. It's about collective joy, isn't it? It's about it's some notion that what the the quality affective quality which this event is aspiring towards is one of collective joy. Whether yeah, it's the collective joy right. of everybody sitting around listening to, you know, listening to Kazuo Ishiguro answer questions about his new novel, or whether it's the collective joy of you know, raving. At a party at you know, three in the morning after the world transformed, or whatever it's the it's that it is. I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Actually, that I, you know, I'm always wanting to do. I'm always wanting to assert to people that when we talk about collective joy, we're not just talking about raves because people think that's often think that's what I mean when I'm talking about collective joy. And actually, all, in a way, one way of thinking about the ex, an expanded conception of collective joy is it can encompass all of these activities which some people turn into festivals that can become forms and objects of festivity. You know, we should give a shout out to um, Devon Transformed, which is coming up in September. can't remember when. I think I'm away. It's the um, third weekend in September. Third weekend in September, because they're running it. Um, they're running it as a, a, a you know, a, with camping and with you know outdoors, basically, which definitely seems to turn it into a festival in my yes. in my mind. Mm, does it have camping? This is what I was going to say. Like, I feel like if we if we have our own sort of chart or something of like, is it or is it not a festival? I definitely think if there's camping, then it gets closer to a festival, doesn't it? Do people camp at Hay on Why? Yes, I camp at Hay on Wye. Most people camp. Most people camp. And what? And what's the campsite like? Is it like massive rave up? 
Is it like fire pits and stuff like that? It's not a massive rave up, but oh. it's more of a festival vibe with caravans and everything than it, than you'd think. Yeah. Um, and they've got, you know, then you've got the, the, you've got the guy that does amazing sausage sandwiches in the morning, really, really good toilet block. They say Hay on Wife, anyone who doesn't know, is a literary festival. And like after Edinburgh Theatre Festival and, and its fringe, it is sort of an iconic symbol of British kind of middle class literate culture. I mean, I absolutely love it. Like all of the things, yeah, you're so I'm, posh. I'm a regular. Well, this is the interesting thing that I want to take apart. I'm not posh. And when you go to Hay on White, like for me, as like a not entirely like white and definitely not culturally middle class person, I find all of the things that I find really impenetrable about a certain kind of English whiteness that I find quite difficult to interact with, not there at Hay on Y. And I'm really? not sure if it's because the vast majority of people there are actually either Welsh or from the West Country, but everyone, it's the friendliest festival. Like everyone talks to everyone. It's like I feel more at home there than I have. Like I do at Glastonbury as well. Now, obviously, I've worked there for 12 years, but in the in the green futures field. Um, but at Hay on White, I feel so like I feel so at home and it's a very white festival, but people are so, so, so friendly. The Hay Festival itself is actually just across the border in Wales, but the camping is in England. Oh, I can't wait for Welsh independence. Get, you, get, you, get my border post between the camps. But the Hay, the Hay Festival is is, um, is supported by lots of Welsh government initiatives. So there's a whole Welsh language program and there's a whole Welsh, Welsh culture oh, uh, part of it. And there's like walks and there's, a, there's all sorts of things. So both in terms of like literary science initiatives, like children, everything, the whole program has a whole Welsh section to it. But what goes on there at the same time, like stays there. <laughs> <laughs> what goes in hay stays in hay. Um, no, so 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 there's also where, uh, how the light gets in, which is a philosophy festival which takes place every other year, and it's a very very strange actually festival situation because both festivals they're literally like 15 minutes walk from each other, the festival sites, and they both pretend that each other don't exist. So everyone goes and gets wristbands for like both oh, and really? goes to both, but the, each festival doesn't recognise the existence of the other one. I was I was asked to go and speak at the very first one of when the light gets in, and they wanted me to be on a panel about whether the Enlightenment was a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> and, and they wanted me to be on the side of saying it was a bad thing. <laughs> and I wrote them a page about how this is an idiotic way of framing a debate <laughs> that none of the philosophers they they assumed were somehow anti-Enlightenment were in any meaningful sense anti-Enlightenment. And this does not this does not mean that other people from the ACFM universe would say no to being asked to speak at uh, <laughs> how the light gets in. If anybody listening to this show wants to invite us, just yeah, saying. I'll, I'll badmouth any period in history. <laughs> <laughs> so go back to our topic, like, are these festivals? Well, they're not music festivals. They're not what will come to mind if I was thinking about, you know, the phenomenon of the British festival. But it's not that far off. Well, we have uh, we have joked, and some of those jokes have gone into serious pondering about doing an ACFM festival. 
Uh, we've joked about doing one and charging oligarchs thousands and thousands of pounds <laughs> oh, to come. That would be a retreat. Why are you giving away our like retreat idea? The ACFM retreat is obviously going to make our millions. That is different to the festival where I want to DJ the, the 2 a.m. 90s throwback uh, set. But we need funding for that. So if anybody wants to fund the festival, that's different. Yeah, who's got money? oligarchs like we need to get oligarchs <laughs> in a yurt in a sweat lodge <laughs> get them doing hot yoga while we pump episode after episode of acfm at the 40th hour okay uncharacteristically for me i am choosing a, a Britpop classic pulp sorted for ease and whiz because it contains the immortal line uh, is this the way they say the future's meant to feel? Or just 20,000 people standing in a field? Uh, which is very much the question we're asking in this episode. Also had a, had a sort of breakthrough moment in 1995 when they they played the primary stage and that was when it was it was starting to be televised as well. Bits of Glastonbury were televised. They replaced the Stone Roses at last minute. Got to play the primary stage. Played Common People on, on TV as I remember, and like it, it sort of pushed them into a new level of of fame. So is that this long history of festivals predate music music festivals from the well yeah from the seventies onwards or the nineteen sixties onwards, and it sort of is interesting when we're thinking about how you define a festival. You know, it's sort of interesting how people have tried to think about this in the past. Probably the the person who comes to mind most is Mikhail Bakhtin, who wrote about carnival actually, carnival and carnivalesque, which is adjacent, but it probably overlaps, I think, with um, with the idea of festival. So Bakhtin was writing post the Russian Revolution, wasn't he? In in Russia, post the Russian Re- Revolution. And he was doing like, like literary studies, particularly had this book, Rabelais, and the world in which he's looking at this Renaissance author, Rabelais, I can't remember his first name. <laughs> and basically, so he's doing sort of, he's looking, and it's Dostoevsky as well, isn't it? And he's looking at, like, he's trying to work out what the, what, what the mode of the carnivalesque is. And like you can totally apply it to actual carnival and the history of, of festivals, basically. These ideas, these festivals are these moments in which social hierarchies break down or they're broken down in a sort of almost ritualistic sort of fashion. 
So you get this intermingling of people across social social hierarchies, which would n- normally not be there if we go back to the sort of Middle Ages, etc. And and you have this undoing of all of that, the dualisms that order the hierarchical world, you know, in the normal way, such as the, the sacred and the profane get mixed up, you know, the high and the low, etc. All get mixed together in, in all sorts of rituals. You have, you know, the breakdown of social norms, the ability to be able to behave in, in ways which would normally be unacceptable or become acceptable during these sort of moments. Do you know what I mean? There, there's this sort of like bringing down of like, of the world of social hierarchy in some sort of way. So the key sort of ritual of of a festival or a carnival, carnival in particular, is like you crown the king of the of the festival and then you decrown them at the end, that sort of thing. Not all of that translates into 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 the idea of festivals, but like a, a bits bits of it do. I think you know that idea that like you're, this it's a space outside of normal life where normal rules don't apply so much. I think that still sort of applies to a sort of contemporary sort of Glastonbury situation. Yeah, I, I think I think it does, and maybe this is something that we should come back to later. But this question about like whether that therefore functions under late capitalism as a ritual of license by way of saying, okay, you guys go off and do like live an, a kind of an, an alternative lifestyle for five or six or whatever days so that you're able to come back and function within the capitalist system. So that I think I'm interested in about whether, whether the UK music festival is inherently because of the environment it creates and because it's it's about the congregate i mean it's all about a congregation of like random people together especially in the outside like doing fun things whether it's inherently anti-capitalist or even if it's partly co-opted it can't really be totally co-opted for that reason or has actually capitalism created a space for it so it works it works for the system to have those festivals for people to let off steam and behave in those ways and then come back and be workers. Yeah, well, they, those questions are always really fascinating when you're looking at Bakhtin and trying to parse out what the wider implications of what he's, he's saying really are. I mean, Bakhtin was this quite obscure figure. He left, lived a fairly obscure life in Soviet Russia. He was only translated into English and became fairly famous, like really towards the end of his life. It was most influential in English in, in like literary film and cultural studies in the 80s. It's mainly based on this book, Rabelais and His World. And Rabelais is this, yeah, this really fascinating French Renaissance writer who's, who's like a priest, but he's kind of constantly mocking, like mocking the church. And there's all these, you know, fart jokes and sexual innuendos. Bakhtin writes about him, but he also writes about, indeed, he writes about sort of the great 19th century novelist like Dostoevsky and, and um, he sort of ties this theory of the car- carnivalesque part in some of his writing or in some of the interpretations that have been made of his various writings to this idea that the novel as a so- as a cultural form is characterised by its polyvocal character so uh, as in the carnival in a great novel you've got many voices many things going on at the same time there's this aesthetic of multiplicity and this sort of lack of real hierarchy as even the voice of the narrator kind of often loses its, its, its authority in a really, a really complex novel. So he seems to have this whole conception, this whole aesthetic, which celebrates cultural forms, which are anti-hierarchical, which are playful, which celebrate a certain kinds of social complexity. And it is really, really interesting. You can, it, it can be really useful for thinking about lots of different kinds of 
cultural forms. And this is the word that gets taken and borrowed from Bakhtin a lot is this term, the carnivalesque, which various critics have wanted to celebrate things like carry-on films as carnivalesque or raves as carnivalesque or almost anything you can think of as carnivalesque at different times. But it's very unclear in, in Bakhtin. It's not quite clear, really, if he is even making claims about the social function of carnival. I mean, it's partly because he's really, he's a literary theorist, really. He's, it's not really his job to make a sort of socio-political claim about whether actual carnival is revolutionary or is inherently conservative because of the way actually carnivals are rituals that actually help to structure and reproduce social structures rather than actually challenging them it's one of the really contentious questions when thinking about that history when i was writing my first book with Ewan pearson about rave you know we were thinking about bactine a lot and thinking about what to make of all this and because we were really thinking about the question of well how do you how do you recognize both that rave clearly had a certain kind of radical potential but also it was very clear by the end of the 90s that that radical potential had not been realized in any meaningful way and we did really have to sort of confront the fact that well if you look at actual history like carnivals did not turn into peasant revolts very often if ever you know carnivals didn't like and demonstrate a great deal of revolutionary potential and in fact the age of revolutions is the early modern period when people have stopped just having these they stopped living these agricultural lives and having carnivals and they've started living started to live these more regimented commercial and proto-industrial lives and under those circumstances once people come out in the streets it's not for a party it's for a fucking riot and that can turn into a revolution and I would say if you look at the weight of historical evidence, like it's quite, you're not really, there isn't a lot to go on if, if you want to make a claim that like having a festival is, is really radical and subversive activity in itself. Like you might say that it can link up with radical and, and subversive activities. And I think once we get into thinking about the history of music festivals in Britain, I think we'll probably want to say, well, there have been moments when it looked like the kind of empowering collectivist multiplicitous aesthetic of the carnivalesque being expressed at things like music festivals and raves seemed to have a kind of radical potential it seemed to be empowering for people it seemed to be threatening to authority and there did seem to be some potential for it to link up with more organized and substantial political movements and those are the moments when the state kind of sweeps in and says no you're just not going to do that that is not going to be allowed to happen but on the other hand it's very difficult. It, it's quite difficult to sustain the claim that that it's radical and subversive in itself. Like just to have a couple, just to have a weekend where you live a really different kind of life and everything is turned on its head. And because as long as everybody knows that you can do that, because everything is going to go back to normal on a Monday, then it is a way of making it tolerable for people that everything will be back to normal on a Monday. You know, the other person that comes to mind it when we're talking about whether this this sort of these sorts of festivals or this sort of moment of excess is, is radical, or whether it's just a letting off of steam which allows society to continue as it is, is somebody like George Bataille. We've always we wanted to talk about George Bataille for a long time. We should probably shouldn't go into no, too much. We now. have talked about Bataille, have we? Oh, yeah. good. Let's talk, let's talk a bit more. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, because that's one of the things he grapples with, and he doesn't really seem to know which way round to fall on, whether this these moments, he sort of talks about transgression and these sort of like excessive uh, uh, acts and moments and rituals and so forth, whether these are just, you know, ways in which 
a society can can maintain itself or whether they contain the seeds of uh, a whole new sort of form of society. But I suppose the other way to, to, to get into this is, you know, that is something that, that, that people basically grappled with through the history of, of festivals and then free festivals. You know, they were trying to work it out. But it's not, it's not just excesses. It's also abundance, which is substantially different. So I would say that one of the things that links somewhere like Glastonbury, the experience of Glastonbury, not the media around Glastonbury, not watching Glastonbury on the telly or, or iPlay or whatever, but the experience of it, to you know, a harvest festival is this sense that there is like an abundance of, going back to Jeremy's point, like collective joy, friendliness, like music, entertainment, it's it's an abundance. And when you are living through an era which is about austerity and restriction in terms of like money and time and whatever, that's ex- ex- experientially different. Yes, that's a very good distinction. That's a great distinction. Yeah, and I think both are important. So I think it's not like, you know, people don't go and get completely off their heads and whatever. But in terms of the affect and how you feel day to day, I mean, maybe if you're going to a festival for a couple of days, but, you know, because I've worked at Glastonbury, I'm there for nine days and it feels like I'm living in a different universe. And that's because everyone says hello to everyone. Everyone talks to everyone. And you just don't get that in modern Britain, definitely not in the South. Maybe you do places in the North, but you you definitely don't in the South. Do you know what I mean? And both of those things coexist, the abundance and the and the excess. Well I think that's a great distinction. Like Arc here has these are terms which have been very closely associated with the activities of Arc here at certain times, aren't they? Because Keir, you were involved with that group, the Free Association, which wrote was writing about moments of excess a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I never, I never much liked as a framing, and now you've got this organisation called um, Abundance, which is like a think tank trying to promote common private part, you know, commons private, commons public, public commons. Uh, See, I'm not the only one who can't pronounce it. <laughs> no, it's public common partnership. No, no, but abundance. See, because excess, it's like it's a Lacanian concept. The excess is, is a concept that assumes there is a limit. The limit is there. Exactly. The limit can be transgressed, but by transgressing it, you all you do is ultimately reinscribe it. Whereas abundance doesn't have a limit point. You're not pointing to a threshold or a border which delimits you know, the, the realm of the possible. Abundance is a Spinozist concept instead. But good, but also like ex- the excess there's a sense of a pejorative to it, like that the, it, the excess is an excess. You know, there's an assumed limit, not like you were saying, I guess. There's an assumed like balance there. Whereas if you think of something like joy within the framing of collective joy, it's an abundance or love, you know, it's an abundance. There isn't, there isn't a point at which you go, there's too much of this and it makes you ill. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, to be fair, for Bataille, his concept of excess, it Excess it's partly tied up with his very profound attempt to analyse the nature of capitalism and the role of surplus, economic surplus, in in the, the accumulation of capital. It's tied it's tied to this idea that that societies have to decide one way or another how much surplus are they going to bother having, because basically every minute that somebody has has to work, or whether that work is just picking berries or something, more than they need just to, for everybody to stay alive. Is, is a minute devoted to surplus that could be devoted to something else. And societies have to decide what they're going to do with surplus. And sort of what characterises a capitalist society is it's the only kind of society in history or prehistory where people have said, 
fuck it, we're not having any limits on surplus. And in fact, we're going to organise things so that people are obliged, whether they want to or not, to devote as much of their labour as humanly possible to the accumulation of massive surpluses, which are then going to be put at the disposal, probably of corporations or um, maybe at the the, the disposal of state institutions under some circumstances. So, And then the notion of excess is tied to the notion of surplus in, in complicated ways. But also with with that, I mean, what the definition of capital is that the surplus is reinvested as capital to produce more. So that's the sort of that's the sort of runaway dynamic that um, that we were experiencing the the, the sort of ecological consequences of now. Just in defence of my own history, <laughs> um, it, there is a battalion part part to that which, which where excess is not transgression, where you go across a boundary and whatever. But excess is you know there is an experience that you're beyond. You're beyond your normal life. The things are different to the, to, to normal life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but abundance is a better term for that. It is a better term. When we use the word abundance, though, for our, our public common partnership, very easy phrase to say. When we use that, it, like that's coming from a sort of degrowth framing, you know. So it's like you know what we can have abundance of is not luxury goods, basically. You know, you have to. We have to have an abundance of something else. We have to reframe what abundance is, because there are natural boundaries you know technology can alter those boundaries to some degree but they're there and they're hard 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 limits do you know what i mean which means that like the capitalist version of 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 excess and surplus is unsustainable but you can have you can you can change it in some sort of way i still think that all all of the like the logic like when you're talking about resources it it you know it becomes a different discussion but if you're talking about like the experience or the environmental I don't know, like this, like how human beings situate themselves in groups and like what is the overall feeling and what makes the experience of this place or this event different to normal life. Uh, talking about abundance and collective joy and those sort of terms are useful because I find the discussion around excesses or like behaving excessively, like very much coming from a kind of Protestant thinking background, this idea of like the treat and that, you know, the festival or the event is something that, you know, you restrict over here and then you go and you behave excessively and that's fun and excess comes from fun, but then you have to restrict yourself back. That that kind of falls within a certain logic. And my experience of festivals is actually they, they sit outside that logic. Is that even though that might be how people think about it, actually the, the the reason why the British Music Festival, the contemporary British Music Festival is so powerful is regardless of how it is communicated and regardless of how it's talked about, the experience of while you're there is like it it it, it, it elevates part of your humanity in a way that is not just about, you know, getting totally shit-faced. Well, this is, this is also really relevant to this his, the history of music festivals and, and they're becoming mainstream in the 90s and subsequently to an extent. Because, like, in the 80s, if you're a cultural theorist and you're writing about music festivals in the 80s, for example, or up into the mid-90s, then the claim you're going to want to make probably like to get your paper or book published and to get a bit of attention, the problem you're going to want to make is these things are good because they are in some sense subversive of something. They are transgress. And the word, one of the words you're probably going to be using a lot is transgression. And that that vocabulary, vocabulary of transgression, which came a bit from Foucault, did come a bit from people reading Bataille, people like that. Um, it was very, very popular, but it was always, to me, it always seemed really problematic because it's basically saying, oh, this stuff is good, cool, because it's naughty. 
Like this stuff is cool because it's like because it's um because it's breaking a rule as if yeah that's as if what it is as if like that I mean it's like an adolescent kind of political aesthetic really it's just well yeah um, but because exactly we, we, well look well look what's where, where where transgressions coming from now it's coming from that the right <laughs> no exactly transgressing liberal norms you know? well it's inherent but also it's an inherently liberal politics it's a liberal politics which it's yeah. a kind of radical liberalism which what it's opposed to isn't like individualism inequality and deprivation what it's opposed to is all forms of normativity it's opposed to mummy and daddy telling you what to do and what time you can go to bed at night rather than being opposed to you know <laughs> like capitalist exploitation and deprivation and so abundance is a really i like abundance as a term as a concept partly because it's a really it, it's actually it is a way of getting at some of the same things of pointing at some of the same things some of the things that are cool about practices which might have been characterized as transgressive or subversive but but pointing out what is actually good about them from a socialist point of view. I think you, you can apply that to lots of things, really. I mean, an example of a cultural practice that people have theorised in that way is like is things like, you know, people have wanted to say, like, skateboarding and graffiti are cool because they're subversive of urban space, as if being subversive of urban space is inherently good, which is a problematic formulation because we, you could also say that bloody property developers are subversive of urban space. But what's cool about like skateboarding and graffiti or things like that is that they, they sort of add something without taking anything away necessarily. So that, con- that conception of abundance as being something that, yeah. that is additive, it's expansive, and that's what makes it feel empowering and sort of beautiful. I think it is uh, potentially really... Really, really useful actually greater than the sum of its parts yeah exactly that's yeah. always greater than the sum of its parts i think the other way that that this idea this concept of abundance that we've been throwing up uh, overlaps with festivals is well one there are socioeconomic conditions around this history of festivals which we're going to get to in a moment and that is uh, um not quite abundance but, you know, a dole you could live on, put it that way, right? You know, uh, and what did that give you? It gave you basically an abundance of free time. And and that's sort of what people experience. I think at Glastonbury, that suspension from the sort of stresses of everyday life is a suspension from all of those all of those demands on your free time. Do you know what I mean? And so you have enough time to just wander about, like, but discover something, come across something, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, look, this looks interesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's why when I when I go to festivals, and I haven't been to a festival for a few years, you know, I would never really be bothered about seeing any bands. I'd want to wander around, you know, see what turns up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wouldn't want to be on the clock and have to go and see uh, Osric Tentacles at half past ten. <laughs> but also, free, I have to say, free. T- I think free time in the way that we're thinking about it, and maybe we should do a whole episode about this, is quite 20th century. I think free time is sort of like what is free and what is labor when you're, you know, when you're a precarious worker is like when you're working, when you're not, it's quite different these days. So I'm not sure how that's related to by a subject who, who by somebody who's subjected to this, like when they go to the festival. It's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, perhaps these days there's, People are probably like checking their emails on their phones at Glastonbury and all that sort of stuff, aren't they? But that's yeah. not that's not what I used to do. Okay, I think we should play Seize the Day, which are a quintessentially West Country band that I came across in Glastonbury in 1998. Laws of a civilized land are quite clear. Selling weapons to dictators who murder stuff. Rape and torture is illegal. There is timber, there is oil On Indonesian soil And the 
there's money to be made from the arm street. Our boys need jobs, you shout it from the rooftops, but not one word of the lives lost or destroyed. And they play kind of like pretty anti-capitalist songs and we should play with my hammer. You continue to deceive yourselves in this way. All the people that you pay to make the jet fighters. With my hammer I break the chain I will not remain in silence. I will stand and I will defend my right to fight against violence. No prison can contain the freedom that we of Palace House were given over to the 6th Bewley Jazz Festival. It's the event at which the fans forget the conventional life, let themselves go, and dress like crazy. The other thing we need to sort of think about in terms of fest- festivals is that there's just a huge amount of like conflict that, that they produce. Uh, some, sometimes that conflict is like internal, but most of the time it's, you know, an external. It's conflict with straight society, something like that, you know. Uh, and that goes right back to like the birth of music festivals in the UK. Do you, see, do you like my transition there? Yeah. <laughs> nice, and it's smooth. <laughs> mm. so, seamless, seamless. Seamless, yeah. Until seamless I, um, Milburn. Seamless Milburn. <laughs> until I revealed my seams. The, the sort of canon traces it back to Bewley Jazz Festival, like the history of, of music festivals, which is 1956. So Bewley is a, is a stately home, isn't it, I think? Yes. Anyway, it's run by Lord Montague of Bewley. <laughs> Um, set up in 1956, but in 1960, like that, got into the into the news because there was a there was a riot at Bewley, a battle between fans of trad jazz and modern jazz. Yes, <laughs> and, and they I can't remember quite what, what the thing is, but like Akabilk was playing, and like basically fans stormed the stage, and you know had a fight basically that sort of, that sort of thing. What side would you have been on, Jeremy? Well, that's a very good question. I don't know in Britain. Were, you, I don't... were you trad or were you modern? We need to know this. Well, I don't. It's really hot. It's incredibly difficult to translate that into that a political social context of Britain in the late fifties, early sixties. I mean, it's the same context that produced the famous incident where somebody at Manchester Free Trade Hall shouts Judas at Bob Dylan because he's playing an electric guitar. That basically. The way in which British music fans experienced like, American music, a lot of like contemporary American music between the mid-50s or even, the, say, about 52, 53, and the mid-60s, they experienced it as this as, as highly commercial, as this sort of as the music of capitalism, basically. So however misconceived it was, like for this whole cohort of young people in the 50s, like being into a form of jazz, which they thought of, I think to some extent correctly, to some extent erroneously, as having been typical of the jazz of the pre-war period and sort of rejecting what they saw as modern jazz. You know, it was a way of rejecting the culture of contemporary capitalism in the same way as being into acoustic folk music and not into rock and roll was a way of rejecting 
the culture of commercial capitalism. And this was all encouraged by like the Communist Party, for example, not really being into either modernism as a general aesthetic movement, or if you if you can name it as such, which you can't really, but never mind. But that, that jazz fandom was linked up to like a political scene, wasn't it, basically? On oh, a countercultural scene, in fact. Being you know, into trad jazz was associated with going on the CND, yeah, uh, Older Master marches, marches yeah. and that sort of thing. And... I do know people like my dad was a kind of trad jazz guy and I've known other people who were and, and by the mid 60s they were all quite embarrassed by it because they they realized well actually once they became cognizant of the fact that modern jazz was turning into free jazz which was associated with the the hard radical edge of black radicalism in America once they had more uh, more real contact with like American culture and black American culture and black American political culture on a daily basis they realised, of course, that their reading of it, that their perception of modern jazz and what, and even who counted as a modern jazz artist and what modern jazz music meant politically, had been had itself been completely distorted by a very kind of low information environment they were working in. But it was the trad jazz fans who the, saw themselves as kind of politicised, and the mods, the term mod, first referred to. Modern jazz fans, fans of modern jazz, who then were sort of fans of soul music, who again mostly were, were seen and were seen by others and saw themselves as quite apolitical. You know, the mods were aspirational, kind of lower middle class young workers, like with with more money to spend than anyone like that had ever had before, and they were interested in spending it on cool suits and cool music. But despite the fact, like most of the music they were into was being made by African Americans, they were not they were not really interested in civil rights, for example, and didn't know that much about it. So it took on this completely different set of meanings in that British context, which. That had all changed by the late 60s because I just think that apart from anything else, there was more, much more exchange between America and, and, and Britain. Like, so people understood a lot more what the political stakes were of some of those cultural forms. But it, yeah, it is a really interesting moment. And yeah, there was this riot, which I think my dad, uh, I don't think he participated oh, in the riot, but I think he it. was there. I think he was there. He started it. For the Bodhi Jazz Festival. And those jazz festivals, it's really interesting to think about that. They were the first music festivals. And contrary to the mythology a lot of people might have in their heads, like the first music festivals in Britain were not these radical, countercultural, utopian things. They were commercial operations. I would want to say they're not really capitalistic because these are not big corporations trying to accumulate vast profits. They are entrepreneurial, profit-seeking exercises. And it is really interesting in the British context that I don't think Bailey was the only one. They, in several cases, they were happening in stately homes. So part of the context for this, of course, was the, the massive expropriation of the aristocracy that took place in the 40s and 50s like through inheritance tax that was forcing them into these entrepreneurial activities like opening safari parks and inventing the modern music festival. So that was part of the context for that emergence. The music festivals don't really take on a radical political character until the end of the 60s. But the the next episode worth mentioning, I suppose, is the, the wave of free concerts. They weren't really festivals, but they were the free concerts in places like Hyde Park in the late 60s. I think the first one was actually played by Pink Floyd, but the one that, uh, the one that was really famous was... Uh, the one where the Rolling Stones played in 1969 to like hundreds of thousands of people. It was a free concert. 
they were inspired by the free contents in Golden Gate Park, which are coming out of the Hate Asbury scene. But I've never really understood what the kind of actual institutional commercial context like was. Like, how could anyone just rock up and to the you know the Red to Westminster Council and say, "Well, I want to put on a rock concert in Hyde Park next week"? I don't know how that worked. They were big as well. Those Hyde Park concerts in the late sixties, they were. Like they were seen as part of the hippie movement, you know, the scene, wasn't it? Well, they were, but what was interesting, and this is something that comes out of the history, if you look at the history of music festivals in Britain, is there was a largely benign attitude on the part of the authorities towards putting on these sort of big public free music events until the early 80s. And we'll get to the early eighties and why there's tension, but but there wasn't. It wasn't. There wasn't like an immediate reaction, and even sort of patrician Tories, to a certain extent, sort of patrician liberal Tories, were largely sympathetic. They, were, I mean, their the attitude was, well, if 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 some people want to provide a public service by putting on a, f- a free music event for the public, there's no really good reason why you shouldn't allow that to happen. It was seen as part of the counterculture, but. Of course, the British context of the counterculture, as we have said before on the show, is quite different. I mean, really, to put it crudely, British hippie culture didn't really see itself as necessarily in in direct antagonism to the state and sort of even mainstream culture broadly conceived in the same way that the American counterculture did until, really until the end of the 70s. You just think about the cultural fact of the Beatles in 1968-69, like when they're doing their free concert on the roof, they're doing that concert on the roof of Abbey Road and everything. The Beatles at the same time are seen as these iconic avatars of the counterculture, but they are also just the most popular band in Britain. They all, they're beloved. Like no, no politician can say openly they don't like the Beatles, like without being seen as you know someone on the right wing fringe of the Tory party. You know, Wilson, Harold Wilson's like really was always desperate to associate himself with the Beatles, for example. So it's a really interesting moment. And in that context, like the music festivals, they don't have really, they don't even really have this kind of transgressive quality. They're seen as part of a kind of emergent culture which might be going in new directions, but which isn't necessarily oppositional in any meaningful sense. I don't know if that's com- completely true. I mean, for instance, there is a crackdown on Windsor Free Festival we'll get to in 1974. Then again, that is in Windsor Great Park, which is like you can see Buckingham, um, see Windsor Palace. So, all right, there might be particular reasons for that. The, the next sort of one we'd probably want to talk about is the Isle of Wight Festival. There, I think you can see a fracture within the counterculture slash hippiedom, etc., where there are there is a militant minority trying to push this culture in a much more radical direction and even like attitudes towards the Beatles, you know, they change quite substantially Yeah, towards the, the, the mid to late seventies. Yeah. Well, if we, I mean, if we want to be really specific, I would say there is an urban anarchist scene, which would have its headquarters in places like Notting Hill um, yeah. in the late sixties, which has a self-consciously anti-capitalist politics and is being influenced by the, the radicalization of the counterculture in the States. And is represent. I mean, in musical terms, this is where people like Hawkwind are coming from, from mm. the end of the sixties. And then there's a more mainstream sort of hippie culture, which is much less, which doesn't see itself as being in antagonism to the state because it's because it see it sees itself as sort of avant garde. But of course, the key difference with the states is Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam people. Britain is not in Vietnam. 
So pe- people are protesting against Vietnam in like 68, 69, but what they're protesting against is the Americans. You know, not, there isn't a British government. The British government doesn't give military support to Vietnam. So that then... So that's the big difference. So under the circumstances where your government has, you know, for pretty much the only time in bloody history, that has declined to actively support an American military intervention. They've got that happening. You've got the, a massive expansion of the welfare state. You've got the expansion of the universities. You've got the highest, in 1966, you've got the highest real real terms wages for all working people in, in British history and absolute, and the highest for young people, like by an, astro- an almost astronomical amount. You know, wages for young people have gone up exponentially since the beginning of the 50s and they're, they're about to start falling for the next 30 years, <laughs> the next 50 years. But So there isn't really much for people to rebel against at that moment. Yeah. Let's talk about the Isle of Wax. I think that is a, that's like, sort of like an interesting example of like this tension that emerges. The Isle of Wight is, a, is a, an island just on the south coast near Southampton, for anybody who's not familiar. You have to get a ferry out there, basically. And so a couple of entrepreneurs, I think one of them was a lord as well, actually, or some an aristocrat, I can't quite remember. They set the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969, and it's sort of like quite big and sort of a success. Bob Dylan plays in it, but it's like the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival is like the, the iconic festival because there's like loads of people there. 600,000 or something like that people turn up. In fact, my Auntie Joy hitched to uh, the Isle of Wight Festival. And so it's a festival. It's got, like, fences around it, except you have to get a ticket to to get in. But, like, lots more people turn up than you can have tickets for. The, the big pop stars of the of the day play, etc. There's a really famous Jimi Hendrix performance that um, perhaps we could dig out and <laughs> play a little bit of. Uh, but yeah. like it's really Jimmy famous. Hendrix and the band of gypsies after he dissolved the Jimi Hendrix experience, right? Mm. And so there's basically a huge fence, and then loads more people turn up who who can't get in. Um, and there's a big hill where you can see the bands from outside the fence and all this sort of stuff. And then this big sort of shanty town builds up, which gets called Desolation Row, which is a 1966 Dylan song. Yeah, and after a couple of days. There's there's people like this. There's this character Mick Farron who was in a load of bands and then became a music journalist. And he was organising a little group called the White Panthers. So this is coming out of like that that London squatting, very political sort of scene. And apparently it was some French anarchists as well who were fresh from the May days in 1968. They started giving out leaflets. Let's pull down the fence, and they pulled down the fences. Um, you know, loads of people pulled down the fences, and then the last day was declared uh, a free festival. Like it's like that paradigmatic thing. There's sort of like these two. There's this commercial culture going on, which is sort of tolerated, and then there's this this much more countercultural, much more explicitly like left wing, quite often explicitly sort of anarchist sort of trend, which basically wants to go beyond that, you know. And you can see into the seventies that 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 those two movements sort of split off from each other to some degree, and in fact, the latter starts to become like the really really big thing. Uh, right up until uh, to sort of like 1980s, basically. We put this festival on you bastards with a lot of love. We worked for one year for you pigs. And you want to break our walls down? And you want to destroy it? Well, you go to hell. Hawkwind, we've played before. We really should play them a lot. I'm always quite guilty for not really knowing that much about their oeuvre. Um, because they are arguably the band of the British counterculture to this day. 
let's play their classic anthem from 1971, Silver Machine. much. I've been to about 10 fucking festivals and I love music. I just think one thing, this festival business is becoming a psychedelic concentration camp where people are being exploited and there's enough of that. What is all this peace and love shit when you have police dogs out there? Well, the the assumption, I mean, the effect of that, um, those events in 1970, which did sort of parallel what happens with Woodstock in the States, which also is supposed mm. to be a commercial festival, but just so many people turn up, they can't police it. Yeah. The effect of that was that it became sort of conventional wisdom in the live entertainment industry that the music festival was just too big and chaotic for it to be, to, for it to be possible really to make money from it predictably and, and f- to be able to organize and police the crowds. Because that's the context in which in, in the States to a greater extent and also to an extent in Britain, the stadium concert becomes the alternative format because a stadium co- is built to contain and regulate the physical disposition of huge crowds. You know, it's a, in Foucauldian terms, you know, it's a space of surveillance as well as a, it's a space within which the crowd can, can be surveilled as well as the, in which everybody can see the performers uh, all at one time. Of course, you know, eventually, like Pink Floyd, who, who play the first free concert in Hyde Park, like, who become, then become a big stadium band. And, you know, they, their most famous like, album and performance, The Wall, is, is about the, their, their sense of alienation you know, produced by this format of the, the stadium concert. But the reason that's happening is because the festival, which look, which you might think after Woodstock and Iron of White in 69 is going to be like the format of the 70s, is just widely seen as being, un, it's unpoliceable, it's un, you, you can't be sure basically that you won't get so many people turning up that they pull down the fence and then you won't make any money from it. And so it, it comes to be associated with the counterculture and with a kind of anarchist politics, partly because they seem to be the only people who've actually got the organisational capacity to make that kind of event happen. Of course, Glastonbury, when does Glastonbury start? Is it 1970? There's a very small one in 1970, and then there's a free festival in 1971, which is it's only free because basically a couple of aristocrats pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Pay for everything. But Glastonbury involves, and Glastonbury right from the beginning there is in this sort of third space. It's like the third sector of, of, um, of festivals, isn't it? Because it's a ticketed festival, but the profits all go to CND for years and years and years until they start going to Greenpeace after the end of the Cold War, basically. 
So it's a ticketed festival, like it's stewarded, but stewarding Glastonbury, like right from the mid 70s onwards, is seen as like a political thing. Like you go and you work as a steward at Glastonbury because Glastonbury will gives money, is raising money for CND. So you're basically working for the peace movement by stewarding at Glastonbury. You're not just like doing a job. So it's ticketed and it's also the practice at Glastonbury up until the end of the 80s really is to turn a blind eye to anybody who, to people who turn up without tickets and and want to come in for free and there's no advertising until yeah. now yeah like it's yeah. only the it's only the three charities so it isn't so it isn't a commodified space in that sense yeah that's right exactly yeah right from the beginning really it's trying to have this kind of slightly different model which is not just it's not completely anarchistic it's connected to organized politics and 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 part I think partly the way it works actually is that there's enough people who are willing to buy tickets because they know the money is all going to go to CND. There's enough people are willing to buy tickets to make it commercially viable and to make it viable to just allow the people who don't want. And it's also small enough. It's 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 non-famous enough that only a certain number of people are going to turn up wanting to come in for free. So those numbers remain fairly manageable until the end of the eighties. Well, actually, I think it's. It's the mid eighties because there's a weird, there's a strange sort of interaction between Glastonbury and, and the Free Festival, particularly Stonehenge Free Festival, and it's when Stonehenge Free Festival gets f- forbidden and smashed up, or it gets smashed, the convoy gets smashed up before they get there. That uh, Glastonbury doubles in size the next year uh, because anyway, let, we're, we're skipping yeah, ahead. You're a skipping ahead. There, I think. <laughs> let's let's describe that the the birth of like the Free Festival movement. Well, I mean, like, yeah, the second Glastonbury was a free festival, but that's because somebody paid for it, which is not quite the same thing. So the it's like Windsor Free Festival is that is the event that people point to. We already mentioned it, which only runs from like seventy two to seventy four, and like that directly comes out of this movement, this sort of like urban hippie but anarchist very militant sort of movement uh, from London. So the the Windsor Free Festival is organised by a couple of characters, a guy, a guy called Ubi Dwyer, who was like this real acid anarchist, <laughs> um, as in, you know, he was involved in like the anarchist papers, such as Freedom, which is this anarchist paper and, and, and bookshop that's been going since, uh, um, I don't know, the late the like 1890s, I think. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. He's involved in that, but also like he's giving out acid. Like he thinks that like, you know, getting lots and lots of cheap acid and giving it away is like a political sort of political move. So it was him and this guy called Sid Rawl, who was known in the tabloids as the king of the hippies. So basically you would all know him, listeners, if you were alive at that time and you lived in Britain. You know, he was very a famous character. And he was famous because um he led this this squatting of a 144 Piccadilly. So it's a really big building that's got took over by a group that called themselves a London Street Commune. And if you like Google it, you can see it's a huge, it was like a really big event, this, this, this big, this big squat. They had a sort of homemade drawbridge you can see on the pictures, which they would let down to let like the press in or something and then close it back up. Now that gets that gets evicted by the police, etc. And so Sid Rawl is seen as the, as the spokesperson of, of of that. And so it's him and this guy, Ubi Dwyer, organised the Windsor Free Festival in 1972. And they, they they call it or they promote it as the, the the rent strike, the People's Free Festival. So like you can see it's coming out of that squatter milieu, basically. Windsor Free Festival is in Windsor Great Park. If you look at the pictures of the festival, you can see Windsor Palace at the, in the back, which is the Queen's principal residence, is it? I think it is, actually. I think it's where... Oh, she doesn't live. She's not alive anymore. At the time, <laughs> she used to live there. And so the first one's quite fairly small, but the one in 1974 gets really, really big. 
And it's like, it's supposed to go on for like 10 days. And like, so it's a free festival. People just turn up and they camp. People bring stages along, bands sort of play. It's supposed to go on for 10 days. And then on the on the morning of the fifth day, the police launch a dawn raid when, when everyone's in their tents. They basically come along quite savage. They basically beat people up in their tents, smash the tents down. Like, you know, it's basically a really, really violent eviction of the, of the site, basically. It's so violent, in fact, that, like, it becomes a national scandal. There's uh, questions asked in the House of Commons and this sort of stuff. And it, it's such a national scandal that this is a, a weird one. In 1975, the government provides an airbase for the free festival to go, to go ahead on the airbase in a sort of more official, sort of monitored sort of fashion. Uh, Watchfield Airbase in 1975. Although Ubi Dwyer and... Sid Rawl were jailed that year because they refused to go to that Watchfield Festival and they tried to organise a new Windsor Festival and they were sent to jail for three months. So there's your, <laughs> there's the sort of the, the two hands of like how the state was trying to work out this sort of emerging thing in the 1970s. Providing a space for a free festival is pretty unusual, I think, you know, pretty pretty permissive well in this country it, i mean post post mid 80s britain it is yeah i mean it was it was normal then and it's it's still normal for example in france where it's just considered an inherent part of the right to free association if enough people want to have a big party in a field like this it is a responsibility of the government to find somewhere for them to do it but they won't bother anyone instead of just telling them there are no such places you can't do it or you must have a license and pay loads of money so that is... Which is a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. Like if you think about it, like I think for most people to envisage the fact that you're allowed to do that in, you know, in a lot of places in the UK, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a massive leap of imagination. It is. it is. And this is just, I'm just people stressing... People still do is... it. Def- definitely away from the home counties, you know, but but it's a big thing to think that, you know, you can just do this. Yeah. And you're not restricted in that way. Yeah. And there's been a massive constriction. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the history, but from from the mid-80s onwards, there's a massive constriction of of the right to free association in this country, which is, you know, it's not, it it wasn't weird in the 70s. People didn't think it was weird that the government was giving them an airbase to do it on. You know, there's enough people want to do it. There's obviously like, there's obviously limits, i.e. don't do it in Windsor Park, or you're going to get your head smashed in, or you're going to get three months in jail. Do you know what I mean? That is that. There's something to do with the Queen, there, isn't there? Right. So we can sort of see those uh, those limits in terms of Britain's weird relationship to the royal family, etc. So then they start to develop after Wyndon, the second half of the seventies. Uh, they start to develop small local free festivals, like organised on on a range of different principles. Actually, like in some in some cases, indeed, they are just being held on land held by owned by sympathetic landowners. In some places, they're in areas that are not really owned by anybody. They're far away from um, any urban areas, and the authorities largely turn a blind eye. In some places, there are actual arrangements with local authorities to make it possible for them to happen. But they really become a phenomenon of the 1980s. They're they're starting to emerge in in the late 70s. But the biggest one, the one that becomes the iconic event of the free festival calendar like by the early 80s is, is Stonehenge Free Festival, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's that's another one. So that starts in 1974. But like uh, once again, you get one of these weird characters, a guy called Wally Hope. That's not his real name. I think his real name is like Phil Russell. So Penny Rimbaud, who was the, who's from the, the punk band Crass, wrote a little pamphlet about Wally Hope and this, this sort of is story. Is that a woman? Penny Rimbaud. Penny no, Rambo. Uh, Rambo. Rambo, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for a female organizer of something, but I don't think I'm going to get one. Well, we're still in the history. 70s. Give it time. Right. Okay. Right. I see. Okay. I thought um, well, the 70s um, was a time for women's liberation. I'm, I'm, yeah, go on. Carry on. There are several women in, in, in Crass, but they didn't write this little pamphlet. So this, this guy is like, Wally Hope is a, he's like one of these, these, these sort of hippies sort of like slightly linked to this urban sort of this scene, but like he's from, I think he's from a rich background actually. Much more esoteric, really, than than a hard hardened politico, and he dreams up this idea of Stonehenge with this idea that, like, because at the time Stonehenge was really a you know a very much a sort of like an unacknowledged national monument. It wasn't really part of national consciousness at all. And he had this idea that, like, basically we had to we had to, it was a place of festivities, and we had to go and work out what Stonehenge was for by going and living there for a prolonged period. And so the first 1974 Stonehenge was like not that many people starts at like the summer solstice, but like, you know, a a group of people stay on. Well, in fact, they get evicted. They get evicted in a big national press story called the eviction of the Wallies because they have to be named on the eviction. The local council tries to evict them. You have to name individuals on an eviction order at that point, even from land. And they all give their second names as Wally, basically. And that became a sort of, you know, a news story where you'd have read it in the newspapers, etc. Because it was a news story, the, the festival next year actually became quite big and became bigger and bigger. Unfortunately, Wally Hope or Phil Russell, this is the story in Penny Rimboat's book, he basically gets arrested in a surprise raid on a squat that he's just passing through, has got a little bit of LSD on him, and he gets sectioned, given loads of Largactyl, and basically has a psychological breakdown and then kills himself the next year, basically. It's a sort of like tragic, tragic sort of story. But like the Stonehenge Free Festival, that sort of like starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it's it's like really, really quite big by the end of the 1970s, sort of uh, early 1980s. Like we ought to set the, the, the wider scene, which is that the happy days of post-war social democracy are starting to break up uh, in the 1970s. You know, we have IMF intervention in 1976, the first introduction of like, you know, what we would later come to understand as neoliberal policies, you know, uh, introduced by Labour government originally before Margaret Thatcher. And you get the emergence, the the reflection of this sort of thing in in popular music with punk and that sort of stuff. So by the the late 1970s, early 1980s, Stonehenge is this scene in which lots of different scenes are intermingling and there's a conscious effort by some in the sort of punk and hippie scenes to make a some sort of convergence um, mark perry who was in the band atv for instance and then this hippie band here and now who are very much a festival band did a sort of joint song together perhaps we won't play that i don't think it's very good <laughs> but there's a this is there, there is this it becomes this like this thing which is like huge basically with lots of different people and one of the big stories is that in 1980 a, a gang of bikers decided that they didn't like this and they were going to push the punks out and went around beating up any punk that they could could find, basically. Because these places were completely uh, lawless or self-organised. And so the early ones were self-organised. By the time you just get, like, young kids from, like, Burnley hitching down there with nothing but perhaps a tent, perhaps nothing, um, you know, it was turning into something which was which was probably unmanageable, I think. 
Yeah, it was pretty wild, wasn't it? Because I remember, because as a kid, I was really fascinated by Stonehenge, like and UFOs and ancient mysteries and all that stuff. And I had a big poster of Stonehenge at the solstice, and I really wanted to go. And I remember saying to my dad, oh, "Can you take me? I want to go to Stonehenge and see the, the sunrise on the solstice." And he said, "Well, no, we we can't go to Stonehenge at the solstice. It's just the, the place is just full of people off their heads." So, um. And my dad, my dad is like an anarchist. My dad was a card carrying anarchist, like who, like you know, was wrote for freedom like all his life. So he wasn't exactly he wasn't one of the straights. And he, but by the, but this would have been eighty three, eighty four, and he was like, "Well, you can't take kids there." Yeah, by by nineteen eighty four, there's sort of like thirty, forty thousand people camping there. Yeah, you know, loads of different stages. People turn up with different stages, etc. Loads of people sort of selling drugs um other people send police that so like crews would go around and push out any any heroin dealers and burn their cars out and stuff like that but like a chaotic sort of place which sort of worked and sort of didn't work because of its huge size basically and lack of any organization at all yeah well this would with and this would come to be this has come to be a big theme in the history of the festivals and public festivals so the question of what okay who is going to make it somewhere relatively safe who is going to make it somewhere that maybe people with kids but maybe more importantly somewhere that like young women for example might actually feel safe to go and that is a question which is going to end up becoming very difficult to answer with regard to a lot of these sorts of events over the course of that history it's 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 what's going to really redefine the character of glastonbury is what will eventually do for the pride festival as well in london but of course, by all accounts, I mean, I never, I mean, I was too young to have gone to Glastonbury, to have gone to Stonehenge, but and I remember being told about it by kind of older friends. Yeah, I was too young for it, but um, Alice went, she's got some stories of of going as like this young kid from, from Burnley and like, I think your story is she dropped acid and then basically um, couldn't find her tent for two days or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Because it's, there's no organisation of the camp and it's just chaos everywhere, do you know what I mean? And everybody's sort of... Um, I, like she says, it was fucking great fun. But <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. The thing that starts to happen is also happening over the course of the eighties, which would be the the sort of point of contact between that culture and people like me, in, in to some extent, at that time was that. I mean, by the mid eighties, by some eighty four, eighty five, people who sold drugs on council estates, like what in America would be called housing projects, had become aware that a very good place to go and score drugs at competitive prices was free festivals. There were people who were not hippies at all, uh, who were like local drug dealers in places like Merseyside, like Liverpool, around Liverpool, and you know other part other northwestern towns and cities, who would drive out to these festivals with the express purpose of buying. By hash and acid mainly and speed, like really cheap, uh, to so that they could then go and sell at home. And my understanding is that it was cheap because there would be multiple dealers on site competing with each other, which is the free market. Yeah, works. exactly. It was the free market. So it's one of the things that would eventually attract the the interest of the authorities that um, that it wasn't that it wasn't just a self contained middle sort of it wasn't a self contained middle class culture as it probably mostly was say in the mid 70s that it had become it had become a scene which involved sort of militant anarchists from the cities they were motivated by cultural ideological trends like anarcho-punk and it was also it was increasingly kind of connecting up with with just a sort of criminal culture of areas of really high unemployment in places like the northwest of england we would welcome 
anyone to come to, to, to Stonehenge for the summer solstice. It's a magnificent time. Um, last year we had about 20,000 people, but what we would say to them is that please look at the conditions of entry. We, we do want people to respect the stones um, and we want people to, to have a safe and enjoyable celebration. The other thing we should talk about is the development of like the New Age Traveller movement and that, because that over, also overlaps with that story, I think. Yeah. The story of that is sort of the fact that there were loads of these free festivals popping up around the late 70s, early 80s. In fact, you could go to one every weekend if you wanted to. And in fact, that's what people started to do. They started to spend their whole summers traveling from one festival to another. And then there became a sort of a practice of converting different vehicles to living to living vehicles so you could move from one festival to another buses sometimes double decker buses or Luton vans these sorts of these sorts of things basically it turned into a scene in which people would live in those vehicles all year round and they would you know spend the summer traveling between festivals mainly free festivals and like you know doing selling some sort of stuff or doing some sort of service to sort of you know to to top up their money, etc. Although I imagine most of them were signing on, claiming the unemployment benefit at the same time. I never knew anyone who wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it was, there were no <laughs> conditions on unemployment benefit at that. Well, part. you had very, to go home every two weeks. That was to sign on. You yeah, had to sign yeah. on it. You had to be back. You had to have a home address. Yeah. You could go back to every two weeks, and it could be on a. So it could be on a registered traveller's site. And the tra- by traveller sites, we mean sites that are set aside for the use of people who are actually designated by the authority as travellers, meaning they're either of Romani descent or they belong members of the Irish uh, traveller community, the people who are actually like nomadic people who had lived in the British Isles and followed a nomadic lifestyle for centuries. That did cause tensions in some places. So you had you had people who were basically punks or hippies from the towns and cities who who were trying to adopt this nomadic lifestyle that revolved around the festivals in the summer and just sort of getting by in the winter. It did cause some tensions because then a lot of people did just live in squats in a city in the winter, but then a lot of other people just wanted to stay living. They got a taste for a nomadic life, or they they their bus was comfortable enough to live in, and they wanted to be in the countryside or wherever. So they were set, trying to settle on traveller sites, and of course the traveller sites were not really set up for those kind of numbers. The traveller sites had been were set aside for the use of these very very small communities who are basically self contained ethnic groups and and had been for a long time. So there was a degree of tension uh, in a lot in some places around the fact that these sites which had been set aside for the use of a few dozen of a, a handful of families in most cases at a time from the irish or romany traveler communities were also now accommodating people with mohicans from bradford and it made that scene difficult to sustain i mean the other thing that was going on at the time were peace camps so protest camps outside bases basically the u.s air force bases in particular the u.s air Force that were based in in britain yeah in fact, that's where the Peace Convoy uh, title comes from. It's because, uh, uh, so basically people were travelling between sites and then they'd form up into convoys, etc. One of these convoys started visiting the peace camps. In fact, Sid Rawl, King of the Hippies, comes back in the story. He was he was in, instrumental in like um, constructing this this convoy, the Peace Convoy, and giving it this sort of like character of um, uh, um, aligned with the peace camps and the, and the, the peace movement. So how many people are in these convoys? I'm trying to imagine the experience of like arriving at these festivals because it's like this is not a march, it's a, a, you know a series of vehicles of sorts and they're 
aligning themselves or are arriving to these festivals. So this is a kind of phenomenon that is not a modern day phenomenon, or I mean, like, is not something that I think has been seen in the 21st century. So like, could you describe like what's happening and over how much time and do we know how many people there were and kind of what's the setup for this scene? Well, I think at a typical free festival or, or just at a weekend at one of the peace camps, like Greenham Common or, or Burtonwood, you're talking about like a few dozen to a few hundred vehicles maybe turning up over the course of like a Friday and a Saturday morning. But um, Stonehenge was on a totally different scale. Yeah. That was that was the trouble. Stonehenge, you're talking about like thousands of vehicles. That, yeah, like more than 30,000 people and uh, like huge, basically. You're talking about only only for a couple of years, really. You're yeah. talking about 84, 85. In 84 and 85, probably, you're, you're talking about thousands well, no, of vehicles. Well, no, it's 83, 84, because 84 was the last one. Well, what year was the Beanfield? 85. Yeah, well, that's... There was a massive convoy. They smashed it up, wasn't well, there? There was a massive yeah. convoy, but there yeah, was no festival. There, I know. I know. But <laughs> no I'm spoilers. About... <laughs> we haven't got <laughs> um, But it was in those years that it would have been that, yeah. that it got big, and that and that was the thing. That was the singular thing that attracted the attention of the authorities to really clamp down on it. Was was exactly the it was exactly the issue you raised, Nadia. It was the sheer size of the convoy um, converging on Stonehenge. To set the scene, though, that so Stonehenge in in that sort of early eighties period was bigger than Glastonbury, yeah, you know, bigger than Glastonbury in size and as a sort of cultural phenomenon. Do you know what I mean? You say, you say, you want revolution. You say. A band who we would very much associate with the free festival scene at its high moment of the 1980s is the now fairly obscure British band, the Magic Mushroom Band, uh, playing a kind of music that you might almost describe as a specific genre of British festival music of the period, combining jam band aesthetics with post-punk, reggae, avant-garde noise, ska, dub, and uh, bits and even bits of sort of pop punk. Uh, whether that mixture ever really cohered into anything specific is sort of beside the point. It was a really ambitious attempt to create this sort of universal countercultural sound. And so let's play the Magic Mushroom Band track Revolution from 1986. <laughs> Thank you. 
But we don't want to be arrested. If we leave here, we'll get arrested and split up. She'll be taken one place, I'll be taken another. We'll probably lose our own, but we'll have no livelihood, nowhere to live. We just want to get off this field as peacefully and quietly as we can and just go. Leave the county, you know. Why can't you just leave the field? They won't let us go. If we leave, we'll be arrested, or worse. Like, there's people, you see them bleeding. Like, I ain't gonna find Mrs. being bashed. Not now. Well, the festival in 1984 at Stonehenge is huge. More than 30,000 people. Like, almost impossible to sort of judge how many people there is, but that's the sort of figure that's that's bandied about. And basically, the the local council, um, imagine it goes higher up than that, basically decided that they were, they were going to smash this phenomenon, basically. Well, I think the Thatcher government decided it was going to smash that phenomenon. Uh, the phenomenon of, of travellers and free festivals. The local council got an injunction or or facilitated... In fact, it was English Heritage and National Trust who ran their site. They got the injunction that there would be no free festivals there. Um, and then, like, basically a military operation was organised, although by the police. The police acted in a military way um, in order to set an ambush, basically. And so police were, were drafted in from all around... Uh, all around the country, etc. There's this famous story, actually. That the, so this is this is going on just after the miners' strike of eighty four, eighty five, in which the police behaved in a military fashion, went into mining villages, beat people up. You know, really, really conflictual moment. And there's this famous bit in 1984 where uh, the peace convoy gets passed by a big line of. Police vans carrying police coaches. Into- it was a coat. They had coat. There were so many cops being bussed around the country. They had coaches full of them. Yeah, going up to the mining areas, and uh, and uh, the, the the police basically hold up a big sign saying "You're next" to the to the peace convoy. Yeah, I, I've heard. So yeah, this was a year before the Battle of the Beanfields, and I've I've heard it, I've heard it speculated that the promise of being allowed to go and batter hippies was one of the the laws which, you know, the kind of compensations which was offered to police in order to get them to participate in this quasi-military oppression of the mining communities, which a lot of them were very uncomfortable with, having come from working class communities themselves. Whether that's true, I don't know. And so what's the fun, what was, what was the, the political moment in which this is situated? Okay, that's a really good question. I think let's just be clear about what happens is the Battle of the, Be- the It's called the Battle of the Beanfield because eventually the police convoy, the, the peace convoy is effectively cornered and ambushed in a beanfield. In, is it in Wiltshire or is it? In, it is, yeah. In Wiltshire. And there is, it's an absolutely brutal attack. The police get absolutely ballistic on on the peace convoy. They, they just start smashing up people's vehicles without giving them any chance to peacefully surrender or move on, knowing full well that these are often people's homes they're smashing up. There is video footage, which you can now find, you can go find it on YouTube, I think, uh, of um, police, for example, dragging pregnant women out of these buses and hitting them with truncheons. Uh, That footage was notoriously suppressed by broadcasters at the time. It was only began to be publicly seen two or three years after the events. In fact, there was a BBC film crew there and the, the violence was so bad from the police that the film crew stopped filming to go and say, look, boys, you've got to stop. They're going to kill someone. They got arrested. Yeah. It was like, it was basically a police riot completely out of control. It was completely crazy. And 
Yeah, I've done lectures for students like many times, actually, on the history of, of Britain in, in the 80s, uh, in the first half of the 80s. And I think now, from a historical vantage point, it is really useful to think about this, um, the Battle of the Bingfield, as the culmination of this sequence, uh, which begins with the urban so-called riots of 1980-81 when the police are really in violent confrontation with the urban black communities in Britain, in, in Brixton, Toxteth, um, Side, Bristol. And I think now I would say, I think it's pretty clear that what's going on from the absolute beginning of, of the first Thatcher government in 79 uh, through into the mid-80s is there's a very deliberate attempt to provoke confrontation with a series of different sections of British society. Um, the first is the urban black community at, at the moment, the historical moment of their highest level of radicalization and political organization. Uh, then it is the big enemy, the trade union movement, the labor movement, uh, both in the public sector and in the private sector, and culminating with the miners' strike of 1984. And then finally, it is, it's the legatees of the counterculture uh, in the form of the peace convoy. And in all of those cases, basically, police, you know, the police are turned into this quasi-military force in the way they never had been before historically in Britain. Uh, you know, in the great general strike in 26, they, it was the actual army that had done this work. But this is the police. All of these communities are just violently suppressed. And at the time, it's a point I might have made on the show before. It's a point I've made loads of times before when talking about that history. It's really interesting to me to reflect that, well, at the time, what it looked like was happening to people was this growth of this really awful new kind of authoritarianism. So this is the moment when Alan Moore writes V for Vendetta, the comics V for Vendetta, which get made into a film like decades later. But what? But Alan Moore's V for Vendetta is a really good example of, of how people were understanding what was going on at the time, because people thought what this was obviously leading to was effectively some new kind of fascism. You know, it was also associated with the militarism and the kind of imperial nostalgia of the Falklands War. But actually what happens after that moment, after 1985, is there's a little bit more social authoritarianism from Thatcher in the form of uh, the attempts to sort of recriminalise or socially stigmatise gay people, but that's a pretty half-hearted effort that doesn't go that far. But then what's really from the late 80s onwards, that authoritarian and socially conservative element of the Thatcherite project starts to retreat, it starts to be wound down, the police, who've had loads of money spent on them in the first half of the 80s, uh, start to see the spending on them cut a bit because um, it's already been cut on all other parts of the public sector. And then it's clear by kind of 87, 88, and really clear by 86, I think, that why has all this happened? All this has happened because the Thatcher government know they have to discipline and clear out of the way these key social constituencies. Why? Because what is it they want to do? What they want to do is deregulate the financial sector. What they want to do is, is, the, is achieve their final goal. Their final goal is to remove the constraints on the financial sector, financial speculation, and landlords that had been in place, in some cases since the 30s, in other cases since the 40s and 50s. And what you have to do is get rid of all of the political, is neutralise the political communities and constituencies who would have provided the most significant political op opposition to that project. 
So it's really interesting. It's this savage authoritarianism. And it's always a question from students, like, well, why did they even bother? Like, why why bother like in, in, engaging in this level of sadism against a bunch of hippies? Like they posed no real like cultural th- or political threat to anybody, honestly. They weren't organized. They were all welfare dependent. You could just take away their benefits. I mean, which they of course they did start to take away people's benefits in, in the following years. But why do it? And I think to me, it does indicate that, well, at least in the imaginary of the people doing Thatcherism, you know, the counterculture and its legacies, it wasn't the most important thing, but it was something you had to deal with. It was something you had to you had to smash in order to make the world safe for neoliberalism. I like that. I, I like that argument around uh, release of finance capital and real estate capital. Because in a way, that sets up the peace convoy, like the New Age travellers, the free festivals, as the most visible bit of a wider squatting scene, which you would have to remove if you wanted to unleash real estate capital, especially in the capital, London. Because around that same time in the early 80s, there were about 30,000 squatters in London. Some of those are like politically organised, most aren't, but some of them are. But it's also just the material basis from which things such as punk rock can emerge, and then like some of the post-punk subcultures. So we can see the smashing of the convoy as the smashing of the most visible bit of that wider scene. And then later you're changing the law in order to undermine the rest of it sort of thing to clear it out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because the other thing that undoes that, of course, is because, well, benefit conditionalities get added to benefits towards the end of the 80s. Um, but the other thing is, of course, is that like, you know, opportunities for jobs are improved quite significantly from that that period onwards from the, in, the, in the late 80s, etc., which undermines the sort of material basis for that sort of scene. So that's the Battle of the Beanfields. And that is really, that is like a turning point in the history of festival culture, isn't it? So there is no more Stonehenge Tree Festival. Some over, within a few years, Stonehenge becomes fenced off. Like you can't go, you can't just wander around it like you used to be able to. And that's also the moment when, as you said, Keir Glastonbury starts to become a much bigger deal. There is a story in that as well, because the Beanfield, the famous Beanfield upon which there was a supposed battle, in fact, it was just a police riot, uh, was owned by the Earl of Cardigan, just to bring up that weird aristocratic um, uh, um, uh, phenomenon in the UK. And like, he witnessed this this attack on those people, and he was utterly appalled, and he was like interviewed on the TV, etc. But then he gave the remnants of the New Age Travellers a peace convoy. He, gave, he said, right, you come onto this wood, and then he, the police said, look, we want to go in and finish the job. And they said, no, you can't do it, etc. It's very interesting interviews of him. You know, he, this is something outside of his experience completely. And then that, the, the remnants of the, of, the, of the peace convoy eventually find their way down to Glastonbury and Michael Evis makes a room for them. And then the, the, the next year he makes room for the, for the peace convoy. And so, yeah, Glastonbury doubles in size, partly because all of the, that, that scene moves, locates itself to, the, to, to Glastonbury. That period in the late 80s, there's still lots of free festivals. Lots of them are quite small. Uh, but there are also, there is this sort of, uh, the phenomenon in which you'd have commercial festivals with a free festival outside, which is what Glastonbury was for a number of years, the late 1980s. I went to quite a few free festivals in the late 1980s. Well, perhaps like seven or eight. <laughs> it's like quite a few, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's enough. It's enough. In here. <laughs> Fucking more than enough, mate. Um, <laughs> but what I want to just briefly mention is Festival Tree Woggy Festival in 1989, which was this festival in Cornwall where they, they specifically consciously had this free festival outside and a paid-for festival inside. 
I had a really good time, but like basically it was a bit of a disaster. And like the security firm who'd been hired to police the inside, they basically robbed all the money. They went up to the farmhouse and robbed all of the money. And so they declared it a whole of free festival and then had to go around with buckets to try and pay the band. Like it was that, that sort of model didn't work for some reason, basically, just because of the, the lawlessness of a free festival just didn't fit with the. No, well, it didn't work. And this is also, this was the problem for Glastonbury. The, the problem that Glastonbury found themselves in by the beginning of the 90s was, was that with the best will in the world, they, they seemed to have wanted to retain the character of the festival. But there were too many people turning up wanting to get in without tickets to make it sustainable, like to, to have those people. They couldn't really provide facilities for that number of people on site with, uh, you know, without somebody paying for those facilities. And the cops were saying, you know, not totally unreasonably, that the security measures were going to have to be put in place and the police themselves were going to have to be paid for sort of policing the general area, which was having these like tens of thousands of people driving into it when it wasn't really set up for that. And and the question of, well, how do you fund that? Like, how do you do that? How do you regulate that? How do you fund the security and the facilities that are required to make this thing work at all? was just sort of irresolvable. That's that's how you end up, that's how you get from there to the situation we're in today, where it costs like hundreds of quid to go to Glastonbury. And it's a question which uh, in uh, is just sort of turns out to be not solvable, I think, um, it, uh, absent a situation where you in, do indeed have a general acceptance of the idea that the state has some duty to make sure this kind of thing can happen, provided enough people actually want it. When I was going to free festivals in the late 1980s, there were always two bands that were playing, or at least you were being told that they were going to play in a minute. I'm not, not sure I ever actually got to see them because things would not run to a schedule at these events. <laughs> there were two bands, Osric Tentacles and Culture Shock. So Osric Tentacles actually formed at Stonehenge in 1983. They formed out of a jam at Stonehenge in 1983. Um, which is basically epitomizes the sort of uh, the the, the it's, a, it's a great origin myth for a festival band basically they put out four cassette albums albums only on cassette and then put out their first proper album called pungent Eff Eff pungent effulgent <laughs> effulgent pungent effulgent so, thank you goodness they put out their first album pungent effulgent uh, in 1989 first um uh, final album that is i'm not sure that there are any s distinctions between the songs on the i'm not sure that a, a song is start and end on that album but let's play the first track off that album
then the second band that you'd always see at these festivals, a band called Culture Shock, who were a sort of punk ska band. They formed out of the remnants of uh, a punk band called the Subhumans, and Dick Lucas is the singer of, of both of them, and then went on to form a band called Citizen Citizen Fish. They were Subhumans, were a sort of Wiltshire band, um, so they would always play Stonehenge, and Culture Shock would always play Stonehenge. And in fact, they have a song called Stonehenge, so we should play that. Out in the fields, feeling the spice, of being ourselves at our own pace, and on our own sound. All the papers print the rumors as true, and never admit there's no proof, because they're fine to run us all into the fight, to run us all into the police forces in Britain for a long time. Whatever the causes, the end product seemed to be just hitting out wildly by the police with babies in those trucks and in those buses and young women with those babies in their arms were hit as well. At one stage, one of the cameramen from Fleet Street was arrested for being on this site. We were pushed and shoved to one side, but the worst of it all was that the people in those coaches who were trying to escape from the police were just grabbed, their windows were smashed, and they themselves were beaten, sometimes senselessly, on the floor. And this is not over yet. They tend to carry on with their campaign around here for another day day yet but whether they'll survive after what's happened at the hands of the police today we'll have to see Kim Sabido, ITN. the thing we talked about on the show before that is really striking that's happening in the early 90s is this convergence between the emerging urban rave scene and the free festival circuit you know there are people who are coming out of the rave scene but they're also part of the squat scene they're putting on party free parties and raves in squats in places like london then they're taking their sound systems out to these free festivals which in some places is really really annoying like the hippies who've been going there for years and don't like all this loud noisy techno music you know, to be fair, outside the West Country in the East Midlands, the music they're actually playing is usually the most rebarbative and, and musically sort of unmusical forms of hardcore techno. I often think it would have been different if they'd have been playing a nice bit of Deep House, like DIY where in Nottingham and some of the West Country crews. If you are going to turn up and make hippies listen or to hot, you know, 180 BPM proto Gabba techno all night, you can expect some complaints. Um, well, not all night. Yeah. Five nights yeah, on a five row nights without in a break. break. <laughs> yeah. So that's um, uh, and all this the all this all culminates in the Castle Morton Free so called Castle Morton Free Fest and the the convergence on it of a lot of um of a number of the most prominent free rave crews and um, people like 
Spiral Tribe from London, DIY from Nottingham, etc. And and the fact that it got loads of publicity in the press, like turned it into this massive event, this huge event that ended up going on for days. So so just to put it into it, like there would be updates on the daily news about what's going on at Castle Morton, basically. Obviously, people, kids in kids seeing that are going right. Let's jump in the car and get down there. So, what kind of updates? What, what, what so what on the news? On yeah, the it was just news. on the news. It's, yeah, yeah. They made it look really good. I remember, like, I was sitting, <laughs> me and my friends, we were all home from university for the summer in Southport, like sitting there on the new, watching it on the news. And I remember we were saying to each other, we were on the verge of driving down, but. I think my parents were away for the week and say so we had the, the run of the house and the large garden my parents had in Southport. We decided just to stay home and drop acid in the sunshine instead of driving all the way down to Castle Morton for a festival that might well be over by the time we got there. One of my big regrets not going to Castle Yeah, Morton. I really, I do really, re- I, I, I do really regret it, although we did have a fantastic week, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I got told about it. I was I was going to lots of free parties in in um, around Bristol at that point because my friend Tev lived down there. Tev was up going, "This is going to be the big one," <laughs> and I was going, "Tev, I haven't got any money. I'm not going." And I, I quite regret that. Well, that was always one of the problems with that scene. Actually, I was always remember I was very dubious about that whole M25 scene and and a lot of the free party and even free festival scene because you had to have a car. Like if you didn't have a car, you couldn't go to any of this stuff. That was, and I was all, I was very down on that, and um, kind of interesting because anti-car culture would become part of the that scene. Like once yeah, it became yeah. connected to the anti the roads protests in the mid nineties. Anyway, Castle Morton is widely seen as being the event that provoked the next big legislative attack on all this stuff, which was the notorious. 1994 Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, still remembered as the Criminal Justice Act or CGA, which basically criminalised or placed very heavy restrictions on a set of activities that included hunt sabotaging, which was a popular form of protest activity for people at that time, uh, sabotaging fox hunts before they got criminalised by the Labour government, squatting uh, and raves. Uh, The rave being notoriously uh, defined in law as an event where 10 or more people gather to listen to amplified music characterized by a series of repetitive beats at the time you know people like me who were kind of part of that rave cohort were very conscious or we thought that what was happening was a big attack on rave culture and the rave scene but really i would say i've subsequently come to the conclusion that it wasn't really rave which was ever really under attack because almost simultaneous with the Criminal Justice Act being passed, you saw a significant relaxation of licensing laws in London and a lot of other places. So it became a lot easier to legally go out dancing until like six in the morning. But also a lot of the free party crews like found that they didn't really get interfered with as long as they only tried to do small events that had no connection with the free with the free festival scene, like a, within a year or so of the CJA being passed. And I think now in retrospect, we have to say that the Criminal Justice Act in 1994 was really the conclusion of the series of attacks on the free festival movement that arguably started with Windsor in 74, that really, or maybe really started with the Battle of the Beanfield in 85, that it was really, it was the free festival scene 
the free festival concept, which the Criminal Justice Act was really designed to attack. That was what it was really, it was suppressing, more than it was suppressing rave as such. And in terms of the history of festivals, I think it's really, really interesting. It's really significant that it's immediately in the wake of the Criminal Justice Act that you start to get the emergence of the, the now very familiar, recognisable commercial music festival scene in Britain. There had been a few like commercial music festivals. There was Donington, there was Reading, you know, often associated with sort of heavy rock. There was a few like just what we would recognise now as commercial music festivals. But they completely exploded in the mid in the second half of the 90s. And they completely exploded really in the... Really what was happening, I would say what was happening was my conceptual analysis of this whole sequence is festivals start off as a kind of commercial innovation, but one which isn't really capitalist in character. It's not really connected to circuits of large-scale accumulation. Then it become, that becomes unsustainable because the entrepreneurs involved in it just can't handle the numbers. Then they become a cultural social form, which is associated with the counterculture because it's only really people with countercultural ideals that have the will and the desire and the organisational imagination to make this new cultural form sustainable and happen. Then once it gets past a certain critical mass in size, the state comes along and crushes it and it crushes it in order to make room for capital to rush into that space and start accumulating proper you know, capital levels of profit. And so in the second half of the 90s, you get the big music promotion companies putting on these big, expensive, heavily policed commercial festivals, which are all about profit and all about making huge, huge amounts of money. And to a large extent, that is where we still are, basically. That, I, I like that history. I, I agree with it. But I think there is something about, like, th- there has to be a certain mix for it to be, to, to look as though it's dangerous, basically. And you get that at, like, Stonehenge and at Castle Morton, which is that you have these sort of countercultural sort of uh, inspired events, which can be allowed to go on to a, for a certain level. And then as soon as they start to cross over into, like, kids off estates, basically, do you know what I mean? And become, like, really, really big, big part of, like, signature culture that's when it's like that's the sort of dangerous mix that they don't want well i think it's part it's partly that but that's also the moment when it becomes apparent that there are opportunities for massive profits there well yeah okay yeah that's the other side of it yeah definitely that's also it's the kids from the cat and it's an interesting the kids on the council states might be threatening because this is the working class coming into contact with the counterculture in a potentially dangerous alliance but it's also the kids from the counterculture these states are just demonstrating there's enough popular appetite for this stuff that breweries and licensed corporate entertainment companies could be making millions out of it and you've got to you've got to kick those hippies out of the way who are giving this stuff away for free to make that viable yeah but it's i watched that i watched that film um beats it was a film about free party the free party scene it came out a couple of years ago i think like, and it reminded me that like you know a lot of the, the people who are involved in it and putting on these sound systems etc they were really driven they weren't driven by money basically they were driven by 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 like politics they saw it as a political thing do you know what i mean it reminded me of like that not just the like the 1970s countercultural uh, free festivals and not just the sort of stone henge type free festivals but like the 90 the early 90s sort of free festival free party scene was an explosion of politics as you know or, or motivation by politics rather than the money Brian willis williams bought rod Brefort 6 years ago her falcon Rufus, she says, is a symbol of the ancient privileges she acquired as Lord of the Manor. 
including the right to hold a fair on the common nearby. That translates today as a pop concert. With the police helicopter patrolling overhead, she admitted, although regular users would not have liked it, she would have welcomed the travellers to the common. It's not for anybody else to obstruct their, anyone's progress onto common land. To discriminate between Mr Richman in his Europa camper costing 20,000 and the, a local hippie in his home, travelling home that's fully taxed, is, is just not fair. Not fair. Not fair. So in response to the Criminal Justice Act and then Bill of 1984, 1994, the band Orteca put out a, a sort of protest EP called Anti-EP, and one of the songs on it is called Flutter. And they deliberately engineered this song with something like 60 different beats on it so that it wouldn't have it wouldn't be music characterized by by repetitive beats. And so the EP also carried a warning on it advising DJs to have a lawyer and a musicologist present at all times to confirm the non-repetitive nature of the music in the event, in the event of police harassment. Um, a nice bit of um, musical history there. So with, with that expansive history of festivals, like taking us to the 90s, like now that we're in the 21st century, I think the question is, like, how have festivals changed with the entrenchment of neoliberalism? And like, what does that history tell us about, like, the position of the British music festival in society and in the imaginary? So maybe we should have a little bit of think around those questions now. Well, for me, they illustrate something quite interesting, just about the relationship between sites of creativity, collective creativity, and and, and capital in general. That you know, they'll, 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 those sites of collective creativity will often be allowed to grow to a certain extent, but then they will be heavily policed and commodified. And I think, in broad terms, that's what I would say happened over the course of that history. But it's very easy for someone like me who sort of I didn't really live through that history. I lived through the tail I lived through the tail end of it. I lived through a significant section of it. It's very easy for me to just be dismissive now, actually, and just say, well, festivals from the mid nineties onwards really are just a kind of commercial, a form of commercial entertainment, which I've got no more or less interest in any other form of commercial entertainment. And I don't wanna I don't wanna just be dismissive in that sense. I mean, Nadia, you're the one who's actually been to Glastonbury like twelve times since since that moment of the mid nineties. Like the last time I went to Glastonbury was 1992 
I mean, I did go to Glastonbury in 1998 as a 17-year-old and had, uh, you know, encamped on uh, at the top of like the pyramid stage field or whatever, which was a very, very different experience to like, you know, working there for 12 years. I mean, I would say that like, despite all of that history, which all makes sense, like I still think the experience of a festival like Glastonbury, I mean, I've been to lots of them, you know, I'd been to like Secret Garden Party, like I've been to like Wilderness, which is a kind of a strange festival which you can talk about. And all of these, I've either gone as like a worker or, or a performer. So I can't really speak about the specific uh, experience of, you know, just, just like being, you know, a, a punter and, and, and getting a ticket and going. But I think definitely like going to Glastonbury and like basically living in the green futures field for like eight days. I mean, something like Glastonbury, the the thing that I find really striking is the difference in like the coverage of it compared to the experience of it. Like it looks okay. Like it could look like magical, incredible, uh, you know, the bands and all the rest of it, like when, when it's broadcast on and people are watching it, but that doesn't really tell you much about what it's like to to live there. And when you're living there, and I'm using the word living like deliberately, it's like you're basically in a series of different hamlets. You know, there's 250,000 people there. It's the biggest town in the West Country when it when it's set up. And and each one of these fields has its different culture. And there are people who stay in their field. And there are people who transverse different fields. And and it's quite a, a kind of interesting experience to have. Um, and I think, you know, like some of the themes that I brought up earlier are, are really kind of the things that I think make those spaces special, such as there are no borders between these different uh, these different fields, in a sense. Like the, there are kind of like culturally and artistically, but you can move from one to another. So, I mean, I mean, I guess in some way there are like Glastonbury postcode wars, but like I think I I didn't experience them in in in, in that sense. But I think like it's the, just the general affect of of that being kind of where you live and what you're doing for eight days is kind of special because it changes how you interact with with people, you know, and like what your morning looks like and what your afternoon looks like and what your evening looks like and, you know, where you go out at night. And I think the interesting thing as a woman is I can go out till three o'clock in the morning and walk home and not really worry. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, there are like terrible assaults that happen at festivals i'm sure there are and i'm sure there are many but it's a it's not an experience that i have in the city of being able to go out till you know three four o'clock in the morning and walk home back to my tent in the green future fields that only plays acoustic music so so it is a very very special experience for me definitely and um and yeah i'm very very pro glastonbury i mean last time i went to glastonbury was i think 2004 or something and like I hadn't been to Glastonbury for like a decade before that, probably something like that. Um, and I remember getting there thinking, Christ, this is really like commercial. <laughs> I really, you know, it's a very, very different experience. But why? So tell me to tell me why, why commercial specifically? Oh, well, no, no, no. Dan, I'm going to go on and say that like basically then once you're there for a bit and you wander around, you realize there are areas which are much of carry much more. There are areas that carry a little bit of that free festival sort of scene. Do you know what I mean? And the, the best bits are the bits which where you sort of you're wandering around, you just come across people who set something up. And that you know they they do some you know they set this little bar up or something like that. Do you know what I mean? That I could see the elements, the sort of legacies. But like going to like free festivals when I was sixteen, seventeen, actually probably like seventeen, eighteen. Um, 
I went to I think I went to Glastonbury when I was sixteen, but like yes, three festivals when I was seventeen, eighteen, like they were absolutely like mind blowing for me because I was just like a little lad from up the valleys. Do you know what I mean? It was like a glimpse of a different world. Like I read it politically at that time, I thought like this proves that the world could all be run in a different way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's all like it's all it's all like totally relative. So like me coming from Egypt and from quite a restrictive society, and then like you know starting to get involved in the left and like working at left wing charities, and then like spending you know like the budget that we the small budget that we had at the time to be able like to build a a supermarket trolley on mnemonic wheels for like an anti supermarket campaign, and like with massive flags, and spend like eight days going around Glastonbury and getting signed people up to a campaign like it was very creative and very fun to be involved in Glastonbury stuff and it was like a complete complete world away from like how I was brought up mm. I mean I, like I, I thought what I was going to say was like I wonder if people still have that 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 experience at like different festivals where they think god yeah this 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 is something this is something that's run under a completely different logic to what I'm normally like I'm not sure because I, I, that's not my experience. Well, I think there is like random, what I will call random mad shit. So like, I love the chaos, like the random shit that happens. And like, sure, like part of it can be like thought about within the catchment of creativity. But like, you know, my one of my favorite festival moments that I'm never going to forget is like, being like watching Blur with like two of my friends and we're like right in the middle or, like, at the pyramid stage and just as like the, the guitars come in for like Blur's song two, someone sets off like this massive flare in the middle of the audience, which is obviously like extremely dangerous, like up into the air. And it was just like, and obviously like the, the security are trying to get to this person, but it was like incredibly well-timed, completely ridiculous and and very, very funny. And this sort of stuff happens all of the time. Like it happens, it still happens all the time. I mean, I've not been to Glastonbury for a few years, but it's that kind of like the unpredictability and the chaos, I think, which is which is attractive. There is something about the chaos and the, the sort of wildness that is polyphonic, we might even call it, in fact, to, to have a little call. But... Which 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 there's still you know which brings me to the to the something that we haven't talked about yet which i which i think retains some of that like mad shit chaos which i really enjoy which is the local you know often council sponsored festivals that you know ran all through like the 2000s definitely in london and i'm sure around other cities like there were lots and lots and lots of small festivals in local parks that would take place um and they were always free and it was usually for the day and you'd have like charity stalls food stalls like small you know like music stages etc and i remember that being one of the big things that got lost during the cuts of of the 2010s, etc., and suddenly all of these small local festivals closed down. Now you've had experience of these as well, Jeremy, haven't you? And like they were, they were like great. And I'm really happy to to, to hear. Yeah, go on. Yeah, my experience of festival culture in the 90s was really just going to those those municipal London festivals and really enjoying it in a way I did not enjoy Glastonbury at all, and I didn't enjoy Secret Garden Party, and I didn't enjoy Womad. Um. For, I, I, and I think it, it's it, I, it is sort of interesting for me to think about why, like why I didn't I, I did really enjoy them, and partly it's just laziness because they they don't feel like a massive effort, like to get there and to get home and like to get around the site. 
I mean, my, my one experience of Glastonbury when I, in 92, when I was stewarding, which is work, but in many ways it makes it easier to be there because you get a privileged tent, you know, camping facilities and stuff. I was just, I just found, I found Glastonbury to be a huge amount of work. I found it to be, I couldn't really understand why we were, we all had to schlep to bloody like de- you know, to Somerset to a field in Somerset if we wanted to see like the Levelers and the Fall and and television with the band I was interested in seeing that year because you could do all that in London. There's something about this kind of complex relationship between urban and, and and rural space that goes on with festivals. I mean, I'm not I'm not totally defending this position, but my response to it when I first went to Glastonbury I was in my early twenties and came back from it quite exhausted and really having just felt quite bored, like nearly all the time. My response to it was that was that was like a quintessentially suburban phenomenon. Like it was neither one thing nor the other. It was neither the beauty and peace of the countryside, nor was it like a properly, was it really the kind of urban experience of like really being surrounded by many people from many different backgrounds and really, be, you know, actually most people there were from very homogenous backgrounds. Like there were sort of different ages, but it was nearly all white people from a, a fairly narrow range of sort of middle class backgrounds. So, you know, I sort of think like I don't really like music festivals, partly because I feel like there's, it, there's there is there's something quintessentially pointless about if if what you want to do is listen to a load of bands. Like, well, why don't you do it in a city? Like, I've really, I've why not have a an, an event where you go to you have loads of bands playing in venues in in a city where there's already space for them? Like, why do you have to spend like burn loads of carbon, like schlepping everybody out into the into the countryside to do it and spoil the beauty of the countryside? But of course, I, I was talking about this to Joe, and and, I, and we were saying, well, I, I get that for the people who really love doing it, the thing that people really seem to love is this sense that it's sort of a holiday, it's a collective holiday. It's something that people do with groups of friends, and it's something about the sustained nature of it as well, especially for people who go to things like Glastonbury for for, for more than a week. So there, I can un- and I can un- I can really understand that. I can I can completely understand that. And I can see how if it's over a slightly longer period, or you're with a big group of friends who aren't going to meet in any other way, or if you do get loads of that random stuff, which I've just I've never really had in any of those contexts. If I'm honest, but can we come back to the 21st century? No, leave us in the 80s and 90s. We're happy there. <laughs> I mean, I think that's partly why I like the local festivals because they're an urban phenomenon. Because they are probably they're they're an urban they're using the space that's already available in the city, and they're creating that sense of pleasure and collectivity and even potential randomness in a place where the facilities are sort of all, all already there. Like it hasn't all had to be contrived. And also, I do I like really small events. Like I like going to like I like going to like a rave or a concert like out in the countryside, even where everybody's camping and everything. Because I like, and everybody's kind of sharing the same experience. Because the thing for me about this is always my experience of music festivals is always that there's this, you know, you sort of, you sort of never quite in a moment at any given moment because there's always there's always these multiple, there's these multiple um, sensory inputs all the time. So you can never really concentrate on one thing. You're never really doing just one thing and I I understand it's not like that for lots of people who really enjoy it but for me they're more like they're more like the 3D equivalent of scrolling your phone than they are like being at a really good party or being at a really or being at a really good concert you know they're more like that there's this it's it's more this, this aesthetics of distraction 
than it is actually an aesthetics of immersion or or contact or like real you know real things happening so and i understand i get that there have been many attempts including things like burning man to kind of create something which doesn't feel like that which is more kind of immersive in its randomness or whatever but yeah for me that's the thing i don't like about them is they very they very easily turn into a kind of 3d equivalent of the equivalent of scrolling your phone just casually moving from one thing to another without ever really settling or ever really doing anything i never feel like that at those local festivals some at the local festivals for one thing in my experience there's a much more real mixture of communities like there really are people from all different sections of the community coming together at the festival you really do get a more surprising mixture of music at them and because there's fewer things going on that there's you know it's easier to kind of really get into like a concert performance for a few hours or a rave for a few hours or something so there's something about the and there's something about them being located in the cities in particular that to me you know feels really it feels really good it feels like a kind of it feels like producing collective joy in a space where it's usually just noise and, and pollution but what what do you feel about the local festivals with the local festivals, so so I thought I was really saddened by the fact that a lot of them seem to be shutting down after the cuts in the 2010s. But then I realized that this year there's actually still quite a few that are on. So some of my favorite ones are not there anymore. But this year I went to um, Califest in Caledonian Road in London. So shout out, shout out to the organizers of that because that was one of like the best days of my summer so far. So I was like meeting up with a friend and we didn't know what to do. And it's basically, I've not been before, it's in a very short stretch of the road on Caledonian Road, you know, where there's like an Iceland and a corner shop and a betting shop and, you know, all the usual stuff you find on the high street. And and it just was like an amazing like experience. They had like five small stages, like lots of stalls, lots of food and like all the local mad people were out and like the pub- pubs were open and it was just like, like everybody spilling outside and it was just such a good vibe and like the bus stop had been turned into like a DJ set doing like I think it was like mostly drum and bass and stuff and it was it was amazing like everybody was dancing there was all sorts of different people there and it was a really 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 good vibes and really good vibes and it left me feeling really warm and like that with that collective joy experience it was really good and then so I started looking up other others and I noticed that there's quite a few on that are still on in London that these are hyper community based you know so it's around the specific road or whatever and it's just really great and I long may they continue and I hope more and more of them come back to life there's one in Leeds over in Hyde Park called Unity Day so and it fits that that point you were making Gem, about like different communities coming together um but it only lasts one day so there's no camping it doesn't it doesn't have that sort of festival feel for me it's much more of a sort of you know, an event in the park for the day. Yeah. Yeah. So probably the heyday in some ways of festival culture as a specific culture in, in Britain was the early 90s. This is when the free festival scene even though it was really in decline already after after the battle of the beanfield had acquired a sufficient level of public visibility and there was not that much else going on in the culture such that 
it became something you know quite widely of interest to certain kinds of young people this was really this was when i was an undergraduate student when in london for example club nights like uh, the mega dog which had its roots in a smaller night called club dog and megatripolis made a very different really very explicit effort to bring the culture of the free festivals together with urban rave culture in an urban context so there are a few musical artists associated with that scene at the time in some ways one of the most ubiquitous uh, was a band called back to the planet but an artist i was really fond of at the time was sort of contemporaries of the orb and part of that ambient dub scene as it was called at the time which also overlapped quite a lot with that festival scene that festival culture scene groups like higher intelligence agency as well it was this group uh, well this artist who recorded under the name Banco de Gaia, this guy Toby Marks. I think he's still around, I think. But Banco de Gaia, or like Osric Tentacles, mostly just released cassette albums up until 1994. And then, like a lot of artists at that time, actually, they had to they had to stop doing what they had been doing on these early cassette albums, which was using loads and loads of samples. This was something that was also happening in hip-hop. That there was this crackdown on sampling. But... You can now hear some of their early cassette album work just on YouTube. So I see you can hear all of their 1992 cassette album Deep Live on YouTube. So maybe we can just pull the fir- uh, uh, something from the first few minutes of that. Uh, Banco de Gaia, Deep Live. sort of come back and end on like thinking about the questions we started with which was you know are, are these are these experiences are they are they about like as been able to cope with society are they about like letting off the the steam of it do they have more radical potential like when i was younger i did think they had more radical potential but there was a wider cu- countercultural sort of scene around that which which was saying that they did have but it was also my experience as well of of that like when I've tried to think about what was that experience of like uh, going to a free festival, why was it such a, a, a mind-blowing one? Frederick Jameson talks about this idea of enclaves. He's actually writing about it, in fact, in terms of science fiction and stuff like that, about spaces or moments when, when uh, which are governed by a different logic to the, the society around it, that sort of idea. And that is how I experienced those sort of early free festivals, basically. It seemed as though they were run by a logic, and that logic could be reproduced as a logic upon which society could be formed. Looking back at it now, I'm not actually sure if that, if that was true, basically. Obviously, you know, the material basis for that was it was in the sort of welfare state, the, the, the post-welfare state, and as it as it disappeared into the, in the 1980s, into the 1990s. I mean, you're talking there about the logic of prefiguration, aren't you? Is the idea of the, the festival or any other cultural event as a prefigurative experience? Yeah, perhaps I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also that, I think it's also that thing of like, in, in, in the 1980s, the Cold War was still going on, so the world was split between two different 
spheres and, and like you know the the idea of being able to imagine that things could be run in a different way were much more prevalent and i think like that it's also that it's not just the idea that this would be the form which would which which would which would prefigure a society to come but it's just oh things can happen for on, under different logics for different purposes than just like commercial logics do you know what i mean it helps you get like get out of the capitalist realism even if you want to put it that way well, yeah, but on that point, I've got a kind of slightly different reading of the possibilities there, which is quite similar to my analysis of, you know, what happened in 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 the Egyptian uprising and the revolution in Tahrir, which is that it, it's kind of like these experiences of spending a few days like living in a different way. You know, I'm talking here about the camping level of, you know, music festivals is like it's almost like psilocybin, like it shows you another way. Now, you might be so, you know, wrapped up with your everyday life that you are unable to tap into that experience in a way and thread it through the way that you live your daily life. But you, nothing can take that experience away from you. And there can be then moments in your future and potentially in a collective future where that experience of how you were and how you existed in a festival can be tapped into. And I think that has potential, you know, revolutionary potential when it happens at scale.